0: This sermon, Getting Reacquainted with the King of Glory, Part 2, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, June 12, 2022, at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. If you're visiting with us, we're grateful that you are here. And would you open your Bibles to Acts 12. Last week, we looked at... Uh, a sermon that we titled, Getting Reacquainted with the King of Glory, Part 1. Well, this morning is Part 2. Really, Chapter 12 is one unit, but uh, I, I decided that we would tackle it in two weeks, and I hope that hope will end up serving. So this morning, we are going to be looking at verses 18 to 25, but together we're going to read the entire chapter for the sake of context this morning, okay? So would you stand with me? We're going to read Acts 12, 1 through 25. Our focus, though, will be 18 through 25 this morning. This is Luke writing this. He was a physician, a theologian, a partner of Paul's, and, obvious, and a historian, uh, and obviously a great writer, He wrote the book of Acts as the second volume to his gospel, the gospel of Luke, as he recounts the Lord's work in the early church. Chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put your sandals on. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate. But ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison... And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Verse 18, our focus this morning. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea, And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, grant us the grace to hear, to believe, and to act accordingly. To live our lives, to have our thoughts be aligned with what this text reminds us is true. Not merely about us, but more importantly, about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the words of the great American philosopher, you probably know him well, his name is Forrest Gump. Life is like a box of chocolates. I don't have a very good southern accent. You never know what you're going to get. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You know, I like the creamy caramels and the fruity creams. If, if, if the chocolate is dry and nutty, I put it back. I know you go, wait a minute, aren't you a germ freak? Yes, I am. But if I bite into that, I'm putting it back. So look away if you can't handle it. If it's dry and nutty, I don't want it. I, I put it back. Of course, it always seems like I grab the dry and nutty candies. It's always the chocolates that I, I don't like, that I have no desire for. I see that box of chocolate, and I, I, boy, I have this longing and craving, and oh, man, those caramels and those raspberry and orange creams, and for some reason, I get the dry and nutty ones. And that, that's one of the reasons why I love the chocolate map in the box. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's that colorful. It's brilliant. Whoever came up with that, they are brilliant. That is time well spent. It's that, it's that, that sheet of paper that's on the top, and it's got... Colorful photos of the chocolate itself, and it doesn't tell you everything about the chocolate, but it gives you an idea. Caramel filled with a tinge of vanilla nougat, right? Florida orange creamy. I love that thing. It's so helpful for me. Yet I still pick some from time to time that I don't like, But that map is nice because it tells me, at least in a general way, where and what it is that I'm grabbing. Don't you wish you had something like that for life? Wouldn't that be nice? Actually, we do. We, having graciously given us his son and his spirit, God has given us his word, hasn't he? He's given us his word, where we find the wonders and treasures and promises of his character and his purposes and his provision, beginning with our salvation for life and godliness as Peter, (laughs) the one who just was freed from prison, wrote in his second letter And I, I I I mention that because I, in a world full of dry and nutty candies, <laughs> that is to say, in a world full of disappointments, injustices, and the unknowns, in His Word He gives us Acts twelve. In the history of the church, he lays out Acts 12 that, like we said last week, reacquaints us with the king of glory whose power is unmatched and whose purposes are unstoppable. That's what Acts 12 is about ultimately. No matter what flavor of chocolate you might be experiencing in life, the word reminds us that God is unmatched in his power and unstoppable in his purposes. Not just for you as an individual, but for us collectively as a church, both locally and uni- universally. In Acts part one last week, we, we, reacqu- we got reacquainted with the truth that we probably forget the most. God is always in control, always for Our good. Do you remember that? Well, that message continues today. Uh, Getting back into the story in verse 18, you'll notice as we read that Luke, Luke makes really what must have been the understatement of the moment when he writes, there was no little disturbance. When they found out that Peter was missing... Luke says, and there was no little disturbance, I bet. I'll bet you people were scrambling when they got up the next morning and there was no Peter. Peter is nowhere to be found. He was double-chained, he was double-guarded, high-security, high-alert lockdown, and yet Peter is gone. One can only imagine the conversation between the guards. What, who, who had the door? Well, I don't know, but I, I mean, I was just stepping out to grab a cup of coffee. Okay, well, y- you could imagine. We, we got to figure this out before, before the higher ups find out. In verse 19, we just read that when Herod did find out, he, he immediately sends, sends out a search team. When that failed, He interrogated the guards according to verse 19. The guards were unable to give any rational reason for Peter's disappearance. So you can only imagine Herod's thinking. Okay, well, he had to either vanish in thin air or did he bribe one of you guys? What's going on here? And We see in verse 19 that when the guards couldn't explain, Herod followed Roman protocol. You lose a prisoner, you get their sentence. Did you notice how verse 19 ends? He executed the guards. This is a bloodthirsty man. He has just beheaded James, and now he executes the guards for losing Peter. And then Luke says at the end of verse 19, Herod went down to Caesarea. You notice that. He says, then, he says, he ordered that the guards be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. It it seems like Luke has just moved on, right? I mean, it's almost, it's almost just matter of fact. Yeah, he killed the guards, and then he headed to Caesarea and spent time there. Peter is alive. The guards have been punished. The situation is over. Herod is back to business as usual. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. We're still in the same story. Notice what happens in verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And look at verse 22. And the people were shouting as they listened. The voice of a God, not of a man. Tyre and Sidon were city-states located right on the Mediterranean coast. Think modern-day Lebanon. And politically, they were independent. They were independent, but... Apparently according to Luke's account here they were very dependent on Galilee as their breadbasket. They they it seems that they needed Herod to feed their own people and something happened where they fell out of favor with Herod and their food supply was in danger. And in verse 20 it sounds like they sent their representatives to Blastus, who was simply Herod's personal assistant. That's what a chamberlain was. To schmooze him, I guess, if you will. To put on some diplomacy. And apparently that diplomacy worked because suddenly all is right between Tyre and Sidon and Herod again. In fact, Herod pays them a visit. They throw a party, and again, verse 22, they pour it on, saying, shouting with one voice, no doubt repeatedly, the voice of a God. This man is not a man, he's a God, he's immortal. That's a party. James is dead. The church is hurting. There's Herod, arrayed in royal robes, seated on a throne, basking in the people's praises. You are a God. You are transcendent. We worship you. Did you notice Herod did not correct the people? He did not rebuff their accolades. He did not deflect glory. His arrogant usurping of God's glory was evident for all to see. And you know who else saw it? God himself. Again, look what happens in verse 23. Immediately, an angel of the Lord, perhaps the same angel that struck Peter on the shoulder to wake him up and rescue him, now strikes Herod. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down why? Because he did not give God the glory. And he was, what a horrific death, eaten by worms and breathed his last. As he soaked up the glory from the people, God saw it and struck him down. The Jewish historian recounts it this way. We just read Luke's account. Josephus writes this. After the completion of the third year of his reign over the whole of Judah, Agrippa, that is this Herod, Herod this is Herod Agrippa I, he came to the city of Caesarea. Here he celebrated spectacles in honor of Caesar. And on the second day of the spectacles, clad in garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was indeed wondrous, he entered the theater at daybreak. There, the silver illumined by the touch of the first rays of the sun was wondrously radiant, and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. Straight, straightway, his Flatterers raise their voices from various directions, though hardly for his good, addressing him as a God. Don't you love, (laughs) don't you love how the Bible tracks with history, or maybe we should say history tracks with the Bible, because it's his story. He goes on to say, the people... Uh, addressing him as a god, said, may you be propitious to us. They added, and if we have hitherto feared you as a man, yet henceforth we agree that you are more than mortal in your being. And the king did not rebuke them, nor did he reject their flattery as impious, but shortly thereafter he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope over his head. And at once, recognizing this as a harbinger of woes, he felt a stab of pain in his heart. He was also gripped in his stomach by an ache that he felt everywhere at once and that was intense from the start. Josephus would write, that Herod endured this pain for five days, being eaten by worms. Herod stood before the people as though he was God, paraphrasing John Calvin, plucking God out of his seat. And God struck him down you know there's a this happened another time if you're familiar with the book of daniel in daniel 4 a king named nebuchadnezzar he stood on the rooftop overlooking the city declaring all this has been built by me and for me and immediately he was told that he would lose it all. God ultimately made him go insane, drove him out into the wilderness where he lived like a wild animal for seven years. Now God was merciful to Nebuchadnezzar because he actually restored him and Nebuchadnezzar had the opportunity to come back to his kingdom and give glory to God. Not so for Herod, for whatever reason. But the point is that God is jealous for his glory. And, you know, how do we, how do we apply this to our own lives? I, I don't think any of us have ever been mistaken for a God. Maybe Tom or Bob. I certainly have been, never been mistaken for a God. But I do submit to you that in some way we are well acquainted with gladly taking pride in ourselves or taking glory for ourselves, and it's typically very practical ways. I, just a, a, a quick story about my own life. Uh, years ago, I had a very unhealthy, more importantly, sinful habit. It's called smoking. If you if you if you like the tobacco, if you like the cigarette. Uh, well, today's a good day to quit, <laughs> for your good and the glory of God. But I remember uh, when I was in the professional world, and somehow word had gotten out that, that I had smoked at one time and quit, uh, and I tried to quit numerous times like every other smoker, uh, but it just, you know, quitting cold turkey never worked. I don't think they had patches back then, <laughs> but the point is, it was really hard to quit and so I would actually have people, particularly members on my team, that would come and say, hey, I, I, I heard you were a smoker. I'd go down to the front of the building with somebody on my team. They'd be on their cigarette break. And so how'd you quit smoking anyway? And I always said this. I just quit. Just quit. Cold turkey. I mean, if you want to quit, you can do it. You just got to do it. That's what I did. I don't know how many times I told that. I remember one day somebody came into my office and wanted to talk to me about quitting and I just remember a gentle voice in my heart saying you didn't do that and in that moment I realized I've been robbing God of his glory in my life oh so- a very small thing. But the way I told that story, and we can, we can tell our testimonies in this way too, where we take the glory for, for coming to faith in Jesus. For me with the cigarettes, I realized I was robbing God of his glory. I had an opportunity to speak about the power of God at work in my life in a very practical way that was very relevant to people around me. And I was soaking up all the glory. I was the hero of the story. And so this person came in and said, hey, tell me how you quit smoking. And I said, you really want to know? They said, of course. I said, God removed the desire. And I'm pretty sure they were like, okay, that was a good talk. And they walked out of the office. (laughs) But just a small example, whether it is whether it is allowing people to think more highly of us than we ought, or it's the way we tell a story. It's subtle, but it's the same thing. We take pride in ourselves and we take God's glory for ourselves, and in a way we, we unseat God from his throne. Plucking God out of his seat comes natural to us, doesn't it? Listening, list, or learning to give glory to God in all things at all times. It's a discipline that, that doesn't come natural. We, we, must, we must be intentional about it. whether it's money or possessions, talents, health, position, favor, wisdom, ch- achievements, from our spiritual salvation to our earthly successes, we know that it all comes from God. He is the Father of lights who looks down. And gives good gifts. It comes from him. What do I have that I haven't received from his good and generous hands? And to think otherwise is loudly condemned in scripture. Romans 12.3 says, uh, excuse me, that is not Romans 12.3. Uh, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than He ought, I believe that is Romans 12, 16, so you can look it up and correct me. Galatians 6, 3, 4, anyone thinks he is something. Like Herod thought he was something. Like Nebuchadnezzar thought he was something. When he is nothing, he deceives himself. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. God hates pride. He hates pride because he's holy. And because he's holy, he is righteously jealous for his glory in all things. But you know what he does love? He loves humility. Isaiah 66, 2 says he seeks out the one who is humble in spirit. James 4, 6 says that he opposes the proud, but he... Pours out his grace on the one who walks humbly before him. How, how do we stay humble? Above all things, I, I, I submit we cultivate a God honoring humility to the degree that we live with an awareness that God is holy, I am a sinner, and Jesus bridges that gap. In other words, we live in the truth of the gospel every day, staying close to the cross, remembering who we are, who we were, and who God is And what he has accomplished for us, we heard it this morning in communion. He gave us forgiveness. And he imputed, that is, he credited his righteousness to me. I couldn't earn forgiveness on my own. And even as a believer, I have no righteousness to give that could ever satisfy his glory. (laughs) Staying close to the cross cultivates humility in the heart. Remembering that I deserve eternal judgment for my sin, but God mercifully saves sinners like me. Remembering that I am nothing, John 15. Christ is everything. Abide in him. Remembering that apart from Jesus, I am hopeless, but with Jesus, I am the most hopeful Person in the universe, whether you are saved or unsaved this morning, that this is the humbling reality. If you are not a believer this morning, I want this, I want this, this passage to encourage you in two, two ways. One, we'll see in a moment that, that if you feel hopeless and anxious as you look out over the horizon and the landscape, Uh, of the world. There is a place to come where you can have peace and rest. It's a cross. But I also want you to hear this. You can't do anything. You can't do anything to earn God's favor or love. Or approval. You can't be kind enough. You can't be tolerant enough. You can't be merciful enough. You can't be generous enough. You can't be soft spoken enough because your sin is that great. God is that holy. Oh, but praise be to God who took our situation. Into consideration and sent his son to pay the price for your sin. A savior who is greater than your great sin, a sacrifice that removes your sin. Past, present, and future so that God, according to Psalm 103, will no longer look upon you according to your sin, will no longer treat you according to your sin, but will only pour out mercy and grace and love that is unfailing and unending and will follow you into an eternity. That is the message and the implication of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you don't have to work yourself up to it. You don't have to pass any litmus test. If you don't know Jesus this morning, what you need to know is that you might not be struck down immediately and eaten by worms, but there is coming a day where you will spend an eternity separated from the Lord under his judgment that to us is unfathomable in a place the scriptures call hell. And it will be unending, it will be so horrific. Scripture says you will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall upon you and kill you, but you won't be able to die. All of that can be changed in an instant of a moment by acknowledging to God, you are holy, I am a sinner, and Jesus is the only bridge to gap that distance, I believe. Back to Herod. As dramatic as Herod's death was and as critical as living humbly before God is, it's really verse 24 where I want us to spend the rest of our time because verse 24 really helps us understand Luke's ultimate intentions. Intentions. Look what it says. But the word of God increased and multiplied. R.C. Sproul said something that's always affected me. He said, Preacher, find the drama in the text and preach it. Well, the drama was right there with Herod's death. But there's something so powerful and so forceful on the heels of that. Luke, Luke, calmly says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Well, I want you to notice something here about chapter 12. No, the beginning of the chapter, like Saul, the beginning of the chapter, we found Herod ravaging the church. He murdered James. He arrested Peter, intending to do the same. That's how this chapter began. But look how it ends. James is dead, I can't explain that. But Peter is free. Herod is dead. And God is victorious. In the midst of all of this drama, Luke triumphantly declares, but the Word of God, yes, even after all this, the Word of God increased and multiplied. Translation, disciples kept proclaiming, the gospel kept advancing, sinners kept. Getting saved. The church kept growing. Did the hardship and persecution cease? No, let's just keep reading Acts. And it won't. It won't until the imminent return of Christ. But God's spirit-empowered gospel mission through his church once again triumphs even over kings, even over bloodthirsty kings, even over a king who, who had entire city-states dependent upon him just for their people to eat. That's power. That's power. But the church, Luke, wants us to know, Marches on. God's word spreads, i.e., God is unstoppable. It was that way in Acts. It's that way today. And it will be that way because God is unstoppable. No matter how things look, God is always in control and he is unstoppable in his purpose. There is no Opposition that can thwart his God ordained purposes. Listen, the world we know this. The world has always been opposed to the gospel. It always will be. And it is today. We we hear about it today in places like the Middle East where professing Christ will get you beheaded on the beach. You remember those gruesome images? You experience it personally when you get canceled on social media, ostracized by your family, or marginalized at work because your love for Jesus puts you at odds with the culture. We see it right here in our own country where the current ruling political party, put there by this country, proudly builds itself on the killing of babies, the admiration of lawlessness, the delusion of philosophies like critical theory, the legal, the legislation of homosexuality, and the celebration of transgenderism, all of it anti God at its core. Modern day declarations of we are not men. We are gods. Oh, church, we we need to pray for our country. But we need to rest as we do. Flip over to Psalm 46 real quick for me. I love Psalm 46. This is the the psalm that our mighty fortress was inspired by, that great hymn. Look at verse 6. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He, that is God, utters his voice and the earth melts. God utters his voice. He, he merely says a word and the earth melts. That's the unstoppable power of God. He goes on in verse 10 to talk about how we then should respond. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Whatever you see happening, I am with you, he says in verse 11, and I will be exalted. In other words, I've got this. What fears do you have today? I've got this, God says. What unknowns have you shaking in the corner? Whether it's something personal in your life or it's your love for your country and where the country is heading or it's what's happening around the globe, whatever it is, God says, hey, hey, I utter one word, and it's all destroyed. I've got this. Steal your heart. Pray. Pray for people. But don't panic. Rest in knowing that you are hidden in my son Jesus Christ. And I am at work advancing those purposes. And in that, I am unstoppable. Listen, by the way, if you, if you are new around here, we are careful about how the news intrudes this pulpit. We, we, around here, we avoid over-contextualizing the gospel for the sake of perceived cultural relevance. And from this pulpit, we, we preach biblical truth, not American politics. You know Why? Because our hope is not in what we see on the TV screen or hear in the podcast. Our hope is in the goodness and wisdom of a sovereign God and the power of a risen Savior. Nothing else and no one else. And you know what Acts 12 does? Through events that happened in real space and time whether we have Luke's account or we have the historian Josephus's account Acts 12 thunders 2000 years into the future to us today reminding us that our hope that we have in a sovereign God and risen savior is a sure hope and it does that by showing us that those who oppose God will ultimately not succeed. Whether it's in this life or that life, and that is God's call. (laughs) Why did he spare Nebuchadnezzar, but not Herod? I don't know. But God does know. And that means come what may, armies, kings, kingdoms, presidents, philosophies, social constructs, elites, academia, allied forces, political powers, and anything else that Satan will choose to use to destroy the church and her mission will fail. The cross has made sure of it. The spirit will not allow it. God is in control. And his will... Will be accomplished, just as He has willed it. We, we don't understand why God allows what He allows. Why did James have? Why did James had to have to die? Peter rescued. We can't explain why the wicked seem to triumph. But here's what we know: We know God is righteous and just according to His character and purposes. Romans three twenty-five through twenty-six. We know the cross of Christ has bound Satan and broken the power of sin, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. We know that the spirit in us, that is the Holy Spirit, is greater than he that is in the world, 1 John 4.4. We know that God is always working all things, including the things we can't make sense of, for our good both personally and collectively as the church, Romans 8.28 we know the Lord sees and knows all and will have the final word because Revelation twenty two twelve 12 says he will return with recompense. Vengeance will be his. We know the end of all who do not bow their heart to him, no matter how powerful they are in this life, they will meet their end on the day of judgment. Before a holy God, Psalm 73, 17 through 19. And we know this it's that promise in Matthew 16 God's people will prevail. Jesus said, Peter, same guy who was on death row. (laughs) I wonder if he thought about this, Peter. I, I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell can stop it. We believe these truths, but Lord, help us with our unbelief, right? Lord, reacquaint our hearts with the God of Acts 12. Reacquaint our hearts with your character and promises. That's exactly what Peter's rest on death row and and the church's prayers in their darkest hour and, and Herod's gruesome death reacquaint us with. The unchanging truth we sang this morning in that opening song, God is unchanging The unchanging truth that God is always in control as he brings about his unstoppable purposes of redemption, saving sinners for his glory, creating a people for himself, rescuing sinners from their pathway to hell, from their pathway to destruction so that they can worship him alone, so that they can live and bask in his glory and his goodness. Forever. God will prevail his people by preserving his church and bringing us to our ultimate and highest end, to live with him forever. He is our God and we as his people. Without sin. Without suffering. Without sorrow. No faith. Because we'll be living by sight. No prayers. Because praise will continually be pouring from our mouths. That's why we should be hopeful. In our Christ-centered, spiritual or spirit-empowered mission. God is unstoppable. Who can contend with him? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? I am the God of the universe. Final word of application. Look at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them with John, whose other name was Mark. This verse 25 really closes what, what is Acts part two, and it, it, it ushers us into Acts part three. It, it serves as a bridge to a whole new day in God's unstoppable mission. Beginning in verse 13, we, we now turn our attention, Luke turns the attention to, to Paul and his church-planting efforts From here on out, we see churches, gospel-centered, spirit-empowered, word-informed churches being planted throughout the known world by the Apostle Paul and his partners. And the point is that the gospel continued to advance forward, and it does for us. We are witnesses to the power of the gospel advancing in an unstoppable way because we're here, because we know Jesus. We wouldn't be here if if it wasn't. And so our application here is very simple. Keep praying. Keep resting. Keep gathering. Keep evangelizing everyone around you. Keep fellowshipping. Keep obeying the word. Keep serving. Keep giving. Keep enduring. Keep persevering. Keep showing mercy to those who need mercy. Keep speaking the truth in love. Keep loving those who aren't like you. And in the power of the Spirit... Don't allow the anxiety of the unknown, the tyranny of what's seen, or temporary opposition to derail your faith. We know how this ends. Christ is victorious. So, church, let us take heart, rest. And Jesus, be steadfast and immovable in our faith, believing in the power of prayer. And come what may, remembering you belong to and live for the unstoppable God who is bringing all things to his intended purposes, and no one can contend or thwart him in that mission.